If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them with me once again this morning to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, we have been studying the book of 1 John for the last several weeks. This is our second to the last week. Last week, we will, Lord willing, finish up our study of this first century letter. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we do have some Bibles available for you on the back cart, or you can just follow on the screen behind me. You and I live in a world that constantly calls certainty into question. The only thing that we can know for sure, the world says, is that we really can't be so sure. John's intent in this letter all along as we have looked at it for weeks now, we've been reminded of this over and over and over again. John's intent for the church is that we might know, that you might know, that you have eternal life. Assurance. That's what this letter has been about. It's, it's what our hearts long for. It's what our hearts need. And, and brothers and sisters, it's, it's what God's heart is for you, His children. Assurance brings peace. Assurance brings comfort. Assurance stirs us to action. One illustration of how this happens is in the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco years and years ago. In phase one of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, 23 men fell to their deaths as they hung from these incredibly high steel girders high above the water. And so in phase two, it was decided that they would install a safety net at the cost of Over $100,000 they would install this safety net. And yet, you know what happened when they installed the safety net? Not only did 10 men not lose their lives because they fell into the net, but the work itself went 25% faster. Because the men and women knew that they were secure. They didn't have to fear And our problem with assurance so often is that we look for assurance in the wrong place because we think that in order to be assured, in order to know that we have eternal life, we got to feel it. We think it's based in us when it's not. Now I know, I know that throughout this letter, John has called us again and again to gospel introspection. And yes, gospel introspection is necessary and important. What's this, it's what this letter has been built around, right? These three signs that are indicators that we know and that are, we are known by God. But that's not where our eyes ought to be fixed ultimately. And John reminds us of that this morning. As John begins to wrap up this letter, he reminds you this morning that your faith is not a faith dependent upon you, that your faith is not a blind faith, but your faith is a faith grounded firmly in history. 
And so I want to invite you to listen as I read. As usual, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to sneak in verse 13 as well. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Listen as I read. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this gift, this life, excuse me, is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This morning I have three truths. Surprise, surprise. Three truths for us to meditate on, to remind our hearts of this morning, and to, bottom line, get the focus off of ourselves. We're going to see in this passage the net that has been built for us. Truth number one, faith is a work of God. Faith is a work of God. These first five verses in our passage, are they're, they're like a t- tightly wound ball that we need to unwrap. Having just driven home the relational sign that John gives of, of loving one another, John now wraps in the other two signs. We see this just in the words that he uses in the first five verses here in 1 John 5. Verses 1, 4, and 5, he uses the words believe and faith. Verses 1, 2, and 3, 1, 2, and 3, he uses the word love. Verses 1 and 2, he uses the words obey and keep my commandments. There you have them. There are the three signs, right? Doctrinal, relational, moral. But as he weaves all these signs together that he's been kind of coming back to again and again in this letter, as he weaves all of these together, he does so with an emphasis on one thing, on faith, on belief, on true faith, the kind of faith that transforms one's loves. So I actually don't want to spend a lot of time on these first five verses simply because it covers a lot of ground that we have covered already. But I do just briefly 
want to, want to bring your attention, make sure that you see three things that John says about faith and teaches about faith before we dive into the rest of the passage. First, this is all from the first five verses. First, John reminds us of the author of our faith. As we've spoken of before, God is the initiator. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gives the gift. He gets the glory. And we see this in verse 1, where believing is a consequence and not a cause. Everyone who believes, present tense, has been born, past tense. In other words, belief follows new birth. A birth that is wrought by the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit alone. Your faith, in other words, does not originate with you. It's the first thing John draws our attention to about this faith that is a work of God. The second, notice he reminds us of the object of our faith. Not just the author of our faith, but the object of our faith. This is so important, and we've seen this before, we've talked about it before. Christian faith believes in the apostolic Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He came in flesh. He was the God-man. He was baptized in the Jordan. He taught all over the region. He performed miracles. He suffered and died and was raised to life and ascended into heaven. Everyone who believes this, not just intellectually ascending to those things, right? because even the demons believe those things, but those who make him their trust, their hope. This, and only this, is what brings about the new birth. So, God is the author of our faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. Faith is a work of God. And then flowing from that, John speaks in these first few verses of the effects of our faith. As one commentator put it, divinely implanted love moves in both directions. Those born of God love God, want to keep his commandments. Those born of God love the children of God. And that's what this letter has been all about, right? Sermon after sermon after sermon. Know who Jesus is. Love your brother and sister in the Lord. Know his commandments and walk in the way everlasting. Notice he says in verse 3 that this is not a burdensome thing. John is not saying here that, that obedience is just a breeze, like it's no big deal, but that it's a way of life. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, Jesus said. And so those who are born of God, John says in these first five verses, overcome the world. New birth, the gift of faith, living in this faith, takes us out of the enslavement of the world, out from under the dictatorship of the devil, the ruler of this world, and we are reminded that the victory is won. And so we don't need to fight for victory. We fight out of victory. Obedience to God, then, is not oppression. Obedience in the Lord is joy 
and is freedom. And so these first five verses just drive home the fact that faith is a work of God. God gives the faith. God grounds the faith. And it is God who works that faith out in and through us. The point is, brothers and sisters, it doesn't start with you. And as we're about to further see, it doesn't depend on you, nor does it ultimately finish with you. And that leads us to the second truth where we'll spend a lot of our time. God has given us sound testimony. God gives the faith. Faith is a work of God, but God has also given us sound testimony. That's what John wants us to to see here. Now, it sounds a little funny because the God of the universe doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't need to plead anything before us. And yet God, in his condescension, gives us sound testimony. That word testimony, kids, that's a big word. Testimony is to bear witness about something, right? To give evidence of something. As we move into the second paragraph, starting with verse 6, we move into uh, some disputed waters in terms of interpreting these verses. Interpretations on what exactly John is trying to say in these verses have abounded in the life of the church. For instance, some of the names that we are familiar with, Luther and Calvin, reformers, they differed from Augustine, who differed from Tertullian, other early church fathers. For what it's worth, I'm hanging my hat with Tertullian, because it seems to make the most sense in regards to what John is doing here. I hate to do that because I never like to go against Calvin, but I don't think Calvin got it in this. It seems to make the most sense of what John has been doing in this letter all along, and specifically the kind of false teaching that he has been combating. A teaching that, as we have noted before, wanted to say that Jesus was a mere man, right? And that he was not the Son of God come in flesh for us. In fact, as I've mentioned before, in their teaching, we believe that they focused on two events in Jesus' life, these heretics, these false teachers in the early church of the first century. They said that the divine Christ descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism and yet left him prior to his crucifixion. And those two events in the life of Jesus are key, not just for us, but for their teaching. And so as we begin to unpack what John is writing here and what John is saying, I think it becomes clear why he's saying what he's saying. The picture painted is something like a, like a courtroom, which is why I use the word testimony. I didn't just use the word testimony because I wanted to give that picture. I used the word testimony because that's the word that appears over and over again in this passage. Testimony, testifying. For the sake of illustration, the people of God, both in the first century and you here today, we, we sit as a jury We're embroiled in a case upon which our very souls depend. There are those who deny that Jesus was who he said he was. Who John taught that he was. And so these prosecuting attorneys, let's call them that, these false teachers in their midst, they've been building their case against Jesus. He's not the Christ. 
He's not the Son of God. And John is acting here as the defense attorney. And his job is simple. The facts are all there. He just needs to lay them out. And so he begins by calling witnesses to the stand. Verse 7. Three witnesses. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. We read in verse 6, this is He who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Those are the first two witnesses. Somehow water and blood build John's case for what he knows to be true. But how? What is John talking about when he says water and blood? Well, it's kind of odd language for us, isn't it? Maybe not so so odd for the first century. But the water and blood points to the central fluids of two historical events. Jesus' baptism and Jesus' crucifixion. For Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist proclaimed him for all to hear to be the promised one, the one in whom he was not worthy to even tie his sandals. And on that day, all that were there at the River Jordan heard from heaven this voice, the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. They saw a dove out of nowhere descend upon the person of Jesus. This event was the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you better believe it was talked about far and wide in the first century. Were you there? When Jesus was baptized by John, did you hear that voice from nowhere? You see, it was just the first of many stamps of authenticity that would mark Jesus' actions, that would mark Jesus' words. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. The water that flowed that day testifies to it. That's what John's saying. And then the next... There was his death. His death was so common, the Romans were very good and very efficient at executing criminals on crosses. And this execution started off like all the rest, like the hundreds and thousands of ones that have gone before, until everything changed. The dark descended upon the earth The earth quaked. The dead were coming up out of the ground. And the temple curtain was mysteriously ripped in two. You see, this event which ended his earthly ministry was talked about, you better believe it, far and wide with hundreds of witnesses. Were you there that day when Jesus was crucified? Did you... Did you hear what happened? Did you see the darkness descend? Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. The blood that flowed that day testifies to it. That's what John's saying. And that brings us to the third witness that he brings to the stand. The last half of verse 6 reads, The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And here we move from the objective realities that happened in time and space attested to by men and women to the more subjective reality but equally real experience of many. 
It's the Spirit of God that gives us full assurance of our salvation. He is the one who confirms those things that we wrestle with. Jesus himself told us that this was the task of the Spirit. John 15, 26, when the counselor comes, Jesus said, whom I will send to you from the Father, he will testify about me. We've read this verse countless times in this study. Paul in Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Is, is there mystery here? Absolutely. Is this a supernatural thing that the Spirit does internally? Absolutely. And yet you combine the Spirit of God with the historical events of our faith, the water at Jesus' baptism, the blood at His crucifixion, and it's how God communicates certainty to you and I. John is telling his readers and us here today that there is ample support. Not only do you have the historical verifiable facts backed up by an inward witness of truth, but they all say the same thing. John in his gospel, John 8, Jesus reminded the Pharisees that it's written in the law that the testimony of two men is valid. John brings up the same illusion here, doesn't he? Three testimonies. God has given sound testimony. So brothers and sisters, I ask this question, but I know the answer. Has your own heart or the world around you ever told you how naive you are to think that the only way to God is through a man who lived 2,000 years ago in a back corner of the Middle East? Be reminded this morning, your faith is not a shot in the dark. Your faith is not to be half-heartedly believed. The testimony that he has given assures us that we don't believe in vain. This is a testimony worthy of our very lives. Of course, of course, you will still wrestle at times. Some of you may be wrestling here this morning. Some of you may be still weighing these things for the very first time. You don't have to be sure of everything. That's not what John is saying. But there are some things that you can be certain of. Faith is a gift. Faith is a work of God. God has given sound testimony. So now what? Well, we respond to that truth. And that's our last truth this morning. God invites you to rest in his case. He's made his case. He invites you now to rest in it. A simple equation brings us to the simple truth. It's found in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John only gives two possible outcomes from the testimony. Either believe and have life or reject the life offered by not believing. He does not write 
in verse 13, I write these things to you who try your very best to be good moral people that you may know that you have eternal life. He does not write, I write these things to you who belong to and regularly attend church that you might know that you have eternal life. He doesn't write, I write these things to you who have said the sinner's prayer that you may know that you have eternal life. He does not write, I write these things to you who feel close to God, feel like you've done enough that you might know that you have eternal life. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And sure, the tests or signs as we've called them, they are a means to assurance. But brothers and sisters, they are not the grounds of our assurance. One pastor helpfully writes, if you confuse the grounds of your assurance of acceptance with the means of assurance for acceptance, then you turn the Christian faith back into a performance-oriented religion and you lead yourself back into obeying God out of fear and insecurity. And so I proclaim to you again that true assurance is found in looking away from yourself and to the person of Jesus. There you will find the obedience that you couldn't achieve. There you will find the death that you deserved and the life that you have been given and made for. And so God invites you to rest in his case, in what he's done. And resting does not mean sacking out on the couch. That's not what resting means. No, with the, with the net of God's work. With the net of God's work. The faith that he's given. The testimony he's pressed home. We can obey. We can walk faithfully with him. Because we are his children. We are safe. We are secure. That's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the testimony that you have given, that you have made plain for all to see. We thank you for the faith that you have given us in order to see and to know what is true. And Father, as we go from that place, we go grounded in those realities, in your promises, in your work. And it's out of that that we then show that we are yours as we love, as we obey, as we confess faithfully. Father, I know these people to some degree. You know them better than they know themselves. And so I pray that you would take this, your word, that it would not return to you void in the lives of your people and the lives of those who are not yet your own, who are listening this morning. That you would accomplish your purposes in each of us. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.